Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Norcross, and this is podcast number 19 of the 2018 hurricane season. Welcome to another week at the podcast, along with my partner here, Luke Doris, meteorologist here at Local 10 WPLG. Two more in the hopper, counting this one. (laughs) It's winding down. It's winding down. We're winding down the season, although there is a little something out there to watch that may turn into an Oscar before it's uh, all over with. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And in just a few minutes, we'll be joined by Dr. Rick Nabb. Now, anybody that knows hurricanes, follows hurricanes, knows Dr. Nabb. He's been the senior hurricane expert, and um, he's been a senior hurricane specialist, and eventually the director of the National Hurricane Center, among many other things, is now the main hurricane expert and tropical program manager at the Weather Channel. And Rick and I worked together uh, for many years at the Weather Channel, and and separate from that as well. You see him on Weather Underground show just about every night these days on the Weather Channel, and he'll be with us in just a moment. We've got a lot to talk to Rick about, including Hurricanes Florence and Michael, of course, and also the various communication issues that have come up this hurricane season, as they do every hurricane season, because communications is uh, difficult. In fact, these days, communications is harder than the science, I think. We're recording this podcast on Wednesday, October 24th, 2018. If you're listening at some point in the future, you've got to tune in to Local 10 here in South Florida. Or, of course, check the Max Tracker app or the Local 10 Weather app for current information uh, or local10.com. And this podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. All right, going on out there in the Atlantic uh, right now is there's a swirl up northeast of the uh, eastern Caribbean islands, northeast of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, that the models say is going to develop into something subtropical, uh, perhaps maybe eventually tropical, as a little window of opportunity. Yeah, something that helps this time of year, though, right, Brian, is we start to get these fronts that kick on through, uh, and they act as a blocking line. So these storms, while they form, they don't pose much of a threat to the U.S. mainland anyway, as they tend to kind of stay out in the central Atlantic, and then they get swept up by the front, by the by the jet stream, and then they move on out, and they kind of fizzle and move away, which is the way that we like it. Especially this type of storm, because it's not really starting as a tropical system. It's going to start as a a subtropical-ish kind of system, kind of a northern kind of system. It's fairly far north already. So those we don't worry about. The kind we worry about are the kind that come out of the Caribbean. Yeah, different animal. And and something else that's kind of uh, noteworthy is Willa. So Hurricane Willow was a very powerful hurricane, made landfalls category three uh, on the Pacific side of Mexico, just south of Mazatlan. And is it tied to this soon to be, you know, it looked like maybe it emerged across Mexico and then re kind of organizes as a non-tropical system. And then it could be a nor'easter for the northeast part of the U.S. Well, I think the better way to think of it, and it would be interesting to see what Rick's take on this is, but uh, the better way to think of it is that you have this big trough coming along in the east that's driving this cold front south, and Willa uh, enhances a wave on that trough. A wave is an area of low pressure that kind of moves up, develops across the southeast, reforms off the east coast, as nor'easters do, just because of the geography of the United States. And so... The adding that tropical moisture and the spin related to Willa into a situation that would tend to develop low pressure uh, in the southeast or along the east coast just enhances it Mm. because uh, in the tropical atmosphere, there's so much more water. And you add water and warmth 
to a system that is driven by the contrast of cool and warm air, and you enhance that, that process. And then way out in the Western Pacific, in the Mariana Islands, um, there are U.S. territories. Now, one is Saipan. I'm not sure of the pr- exact pronunciation. Tinian, Tinian, Tinian think, is think. what we think. Uh, took a direct landfall from a monster super typhoon, equivalent of a Category 5 hurricane, winds to around 180 miles per hour. Storms don't get that much stronger than this direct landfall that they had there. So very awful storm. There are about 4,000 people that are on Tinian, and I think 40,000 or so on Saipan, something like that. Yeah, 50,000, almost 50,000 or so on Saipan. But Saipan is the main island of those two. But Saipan got the equivalent part of Yutu, is the name of the, the super typhoon, the equivalent part to what Mexico Beach got in in Michael. They got the the right-hand side eye wall. Mm-hmm. So we don't want to, just because the center of it went over Tinian, we don't think that the uh, that Saipan got away from this. I suspect that it's going to be horrible uh, on uh, Saipan. And they don't, and in the record book, they, they get typhoons out there. Mm-hmm. But this was an unusual one because usually you say, well, there are more of these super strong storms in the Pacific because they have more territory to move over, more warm water to move over. Therefore, they have more time to grow and strengthen. Well, this one was more like a Michael situation because it's only three days old. It hit today as, as we're recording this, it hit this morning. Uh, as we're recording this, it's only a three-day-old system, and only a day ago it was a Category 1 hurricane. So it blew up, or maybe it was a Category category 2 hurricane a day ago and a tropical storm two days ago. So it blew up into this 180-mile-an-hour uh, incredible uh, storm right up, as you said, near the top end of, of these uh, sorts of things um, in in that very short period of time similar phenomena to what we saw with Michael in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. Mm. So, uh, anyway, we'll see. So the big question is, is the Atlantic season generally over? One more point I wanted to make about Willa. Willa came out of the Central American gyre. The Central American gyre is a general area of low pressure that sits over Central America this time of year. And sometimes... Uh, individual systems are spawned by that general area of low pressure. Michael was one. Mm-hmm. And then the the way the atmosphere set up, two more were spawned, but on the Pacific side, and they became Vicente and Willa. And Vicente ended up being a tropical storm. It went inland into Mexico, farther south from Willa. And, but they all, all three of those storms came out of this general area of low pressure called the South American or Central American gyre, gyre being a big rotating area. So interesting. Anyway, an interesting uh, kind of thing. And, of course, we're all hopeful that the Atlantic hurricane season is over, with the exception of possibly Oscar in the middle of uh, nowhere and not affecting anybody. So let's bring in Dr. Rick Nabb from uh, the Weather Channel in Atlanta. As long as I've known Rick, he's been interested in more than just meteorology, but also the message on how it's uh, communicated. And Rick, uh, fantastic to have you here on the podcast. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for having me. Uh, Rick, uh, as uh, hurricane season 2018 is winding down, uh, first of all, how do you look at this season as, as uh, you know, what are, the, what are the headlines in this season besides the two obvious big 
big storms that that uh, we had hit the U.S. But well, what are the big lessons that have come out of this season? Uh, another one of those seasons that has been bad, despite how busy it has or hasn't been or was or wasn't forecast to be. I, I keep thinking back to the early part of the season when the seasonal forecasts had come out, talking about, in many cases, how it would be average to below average and the deep tropical Atlantic would be quieter than, than usual. I remember we were talking about how uh, past years that looked like this in some cases still ended up being bad, and it has played out kind of that way, where the deep tropical Atlantic and the Caribbean, compared to many other past years, haven't had as many hurricanes and major hurricanes. But we've had Florence, that was the long-track hurricane, you know, mostly north of the deep tropical Atlantic, north of the Caribbean. Yeah, and farther that north than anything really we've bad. ever seen like that, right? I mean, Florence was right. kind of and, a freak uh, coming out of that far north. Yeah, and, and how how it made its way all the way across the basin, having formed as far north and east as it did. Uh, so we knew that was one way we could have a bad season in the U.S., and the Florence played out. And then we also talked about earlier in the year, okay, deep tropical land and, and most of the Caribbean stay relatively quiet. What if something forms close to home, especially early or late in the season, in the western Caribbean or the Gulf, and then, then Michael happened. So it once again shows... Uh, in a very painful way, how we all have to get ready in advance for every hurricane season the same way, and we are unfortunately seeing some very difficult recoveries that people are facing because, for example, they didn't have flood insurance or because, for example, their home wasn't built to withstand uh, the forces of the wind or the water, and it just, again, reinforces how important it is uh, for us to get more in the habit in this country of planning way ahead of time for the next hurricane. Um, and it's been, again, like last year, about the water, but also about the wind. Uh, very intense hurricanes making landfall. Yeah, and this time it's both the fresh water and, and the storm surge, obviously. Do you think we should... Well, let me put it this way, because we can't, we're not going to squash the news. But do you think uh, the seasonal forecasts get overplayed? And and uh, maybe because it's the only thing to talk about in the in the spring. But what's your thinking on that? The, the seasonal forecasts get mismessaged. You know, they get miscommunicated, even in some cases by the very folks who are creating those forecasts. Uh, and even though there's a lot of really good science, behind those forecasts, and I actually support the pursuit of this part of the science, and I can understand why people want to hear these forecasts, and there are even interests out there who have risks spread far and wide, like reinsurance companies, for example, that can actually do something with these forecasts, but the problem comes and is very, uh, very serious for preparedness and for public readiness when either those seasonal forecasts are communicated in such a way that it conveys that we can tell you how bad the season is going to be for you, or the seasonal forecast in and of itself has inaccuracies. And the upshot of it all is that even going into this year, a lot of people presumed, or I feared that they presumed, based on what the seasonal forecasts were saying and how it was being communicated, that this year wasn't going to be as bad as last year. And it 
ended up for some people being the worst hurricane season they've ever experienced. Uh, and I really hope that you know those that construct these seasonal forecasts uh, will will do a better job of recognizing the difference between busy and bad to the extent that they really participate more actively in the communication of what people need to be doing to get ready for the next hurricane rather than just focusing on what could be a very mangled message uh, in the early parts of the season that could jeopardize preparedness. Speaking of one of those bad events, let's talk about Hurricane Florence, which ended up being primarily a uh, freshwater flood rain event, a massive flesh, freshwater flood and rain event. Um, do you think the fact that it was a Category 4 with potential to make landfall, you know, it's offshore as a Category 4, it has potential to make landfall as a Cat 4 or Cat 3, something like that. Did that help with preparation, or did people focus too much on the wind? Well, one thing we know from the past is that the current intensity of a hurricane is a big attention getter. And, for example, if you are forecasting the landfall of a Category 4, you're more likely to get people to pay attention to that if it's already a Category 4 uh, forecast to maintain that intensity rather than if the tropical storm or Cat 1 forecast become a Category 4. The, you know, the initial intensity uh, really gets people's attention. And so when Florence was peaking out at Category 4 offshore, it certainly was attention-getting. And when the, the intensity forecast was for it to still be a major hurricane, maybe even Cat 4 landfall, people were very much paying attention. Uh, what doesn't get as much attention and what we all have to work on understanding is that there are so many other characteristics of hurricanes that are just as bad as the category, whether it's the horizontal size or the forward speed. And we had very high confidence days in advance that the forward speed was going to be very slow as Florence approached the coastline and made landfall and probably spent some time over land. And we were you know, sounding the alarm about that, and I had no qualms about going on the air and talking about how much of a disaster, how much of a nightmare scenario this was, regardless of what the landfall intensity or category was because of that slow motion, and we were very concerned about an inland flood disaster far in advance. Uh, how do we get people to be more afraid of water and to, and to take steps to keep themselves safer from water? That's the big question, because even after the rains had fallen and the floodwaters had risen, people were, were still driving into floodwaters, still driving around barricades. Uh, and so we, we just have to get more afraid of water. Yeah, and, and that can be, you know, we had a lot of flood, flash flood warnings, things like that. But, you know, people see these on a semi-regular basis. They don't see hurricane warnings and those types of warnings on a regular basis. And I wonder if that changes, you know, people's awareness, if their um, their preparation would adjust from that. In fact, after Florence, we talked a lot about the, you know, the relative alerting about wind and inland flooding and storm surge flooding as well. Wind and storm surge warnings, they come from the National Hurricane Center. But warnings from flooding and heavy rain, they come from the local weather service offices. So do you think that there tends to be higher profile on the wind and the rain? And is, is there any way that the warnings from the flooding rain could have been changed? Uh, and, and kind of what I'm imagining in my head is those alert maps that are put out 
by the National Hurricane Center where they have like yellow, red, pink, low, medium, high threats. And it talks about surge, flooding, wind, and I think this, that's the three that they issue. Um, is there any way that that could have been improved? And, and again, about the wind versus, uh, you know, the National Hurricane Center warnings. Well, I think where we are with communicating the inland flood threat with tropical cyclones now is where we were several years ago with the storm surge hazard, in that just a few years ago there was no storm surge warning from the National Weather Service. Storm surge didn't have its own warning. There was no graphic from the National Hurricane Center conveying where the storm surge flooding could occur, how high above the ground it could get, how far inland from the coast it could get, and we uh, collectively in this country didn't have as much of an understanding of the storm surge hazard. Not that we have solved that issue completely, but we have made a lot of progress. Now we have to make that kind of progress and make those kinds of changes when it comes to inland flooding, keeping in mind that Michael reminds us how we have not solved the storm surge issue in terms of communicating it and getting people to evacuate, but at least we've made some progress, but I would agree with the sense of what you're saying, and that is that there probably needs to be, now there certainly needs to be uh, more effective ways of communicating the anticipation of a devastating inland flood event farther in advance. Yeah, However, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think it's all with the meteorology and all with the meteorological messaging. There are a, a number of things that are, are separate from that. Two examples are convincing people to get flood insurance ahead of time because the financial disaster that the Florence flooding has created is a big part of what people are experiencing and how bad that event is. And the turnaround, don't drown messaging, as successful as that has been, we are still losing lives from people driving across uh, into water-covered roads, even after it's obvious that floodwaters are right in front of them. So there are a number of areas that we need to attack the issues related to water including inland flooding, but it's meteorological, it's meteorological messaging, and it is, uh, it is preparedness messaging. And also I would throw in that there could be more things that local officials do, like there could be more aggressive barricading of roads so fewer people have to face that decision of turn around, don't drown. There could be, as we discussed at last year at the National Hurricane Conference, consideration of inland evacuation zones and getting people out of those very inland flood-prone riverside communities in advance. So there's a lot we can do to save more lives with inland flooding. That, yeah, that's a good point, the the evacuation. Then you don't really need to know, you know, all the details of what kind of warning it is. I, I threw that idea out of, you know, maybe some sort of different warning from catastrophic flood. But, you know, there are already so many different types of warnings. I don't know that adding more in is, is necessarily a good idea. But what you just said about uh, evacuate, then that that is all you need to know. This is a problem. Get out. Yeah, although it just doesn't yeah, work yeah. quite that easily, though. For sure. And, and I actually, I, I, I'm glad you said that, Rick, because I agree with you that a, an effort like uh, you were part of to get the storm surge uh, elevated uh, at the National Hurricane Center, Center level is, is appropriate. In fact, I wrote about this in the Washington Post uh, a few weeks ago. To have the flood threat rise to the level of the National Hurricane Center's advisory as opposed to uh, being secondary within the advisory and the, the alerting only be at a local level. So uh, I think we're, we're in sync on that. 
Yeah, and, and one quick uh, reminder about the storm surge warning <laughs> is that in the years leading up to the implementation of the storm surge warning by the National Weather Service, the Hurricane Center, and the local offices, uh, you know, I was faced with a lot of uh, criticism for advocating that we add a new warning with the reasoning being we already have too many warnings. But my rationale was, well, let's put all of the warnings that we currently have and the warnings that we need that we don't have and prioritize them. And I would say the deadliest hurricane hazard of all historically storm surge needs its own warning. And if you have too many warnings, we'll then take off the least important warning at the bottom of the stack, not leave off the most important warning that we conceivably could be issuing when you consider how many lives storm surge has taken. And when you consider how many lives inland flooding has taken, I would still be in favor of ramping up the uh, types of warnings or the visibility of the warnings or the products when it comes to inland flooding and ramping up what emergency managers and others do in the face of the inland flood threat rather than, uh, you know, thinking we've got too many warnings, uh, that there's no more room for what is still, you know, a very deadly hurricane hazard. So it's a difficult problem, but uh, there are golden opportunities to improve on the forecasting, the warning and the products, the preparedness, and the emergency management response to inland flooding. And I think we can make progress in all those areas. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, the uh, National Weather Service, of course, is undertaking something called hazard simplification. That's a whole process yeah. where they're evaluating the all of the different, the whole variety of warnings, all the different kinds of flood advisories and warnings that are issued and drastically uh, in the process of simplifying that, which... I wholly support, and I'm, I'm sure you do too, that to at least uh, make some room for for uh, other sorts of alerting that, that uh, might help. But isn't part of it, Rick, don't you think, that uh, one of the big challenges that we have is when a hurricane comes to the coast, you have coastal challenges, you have inland challenges, you have different challenges in low-lying areas than you do on higher ground, and what really counts for individual decision-making is what is the threat at a specific location, at, at my location, as opposed to the general threat from the region to this uh, large and dangerous storm. And, and so at some point, eventually, hopefully someday, we can figure out some way to actually tell people uh, in on a neighborhood basis or on maybe even on a an individual basis based on their GPS what their real threat is or what the uh, their instructions are from emergency management do you see something like that uh, evolving at yeah. some point yes yes and I think we've already started down that road now with with the hazard simplification effort you know when, when I was with the weather service and I was engaged in some of those early conversations, and I would still say the same things today if asked, that you can only simplify the communication and warning for the various hurricane hazards so much. There's only so much simplification you can do because inherent in a hurricane affecting land are multiple hazards that don't all occur in the same places or at the same time. So, for example, you can't take hazard simplification to an extreme and 
undo what we did in introducing the storm surge warning because it was simpler to just have a hurricane warning and not to have a separate storm surge warning, but it wasn't as effective as it needed to be because of the fact that hurricane force winds and storm surge don't always occur in the same places or at the same times. And the call to action, what you do for hurricane force winds and for storm surge is different. So that's why I don't support, you know, hazard simplification to an extreme. You know, we, we can't boil it all down to one kind of warning or one kind of uh, uh, communication system that will handle all the hazards. But I agree what you that. say is exactly the case, and that is the way to effectively uh, communicate the various hurricane hazards is to make them not only hazard-specific, but location-specific. And that is uh, what is different about the new Weather Service storm surge warning and about the potential storm surge flooding map, is it communicates the storm surge hazard in a hazard-specific way, talking about storm surge, but also it's location-specific. The storm surge warning isn't just a strip along the coast. It goes as far inland as it needs to go uh, to cover areas that are actually at risk for the hazard, and the potential storm surge flooding map is very location-specific. So um, that's the direction we need to head, and I think the direction we need to head when we better tackle the inland flood hazard. You know, if you, you know, highlight where catastrophic inland flooding could occur and make it location-specific, because I think uh, we could all agree that people are more likely to respond to a warning, to an evacuation instruction, if they know that it applies directly to them and their community, their life, and their risk. It seems that the overall response, the, uh, the buzz around hurricanes and just in maybe preparation to stems a lot from its strength, its current wind speed, its forecast wind speed, a lot about wind speed and its intensity. So let's talk about both Michael and Florence and their wind speed forecasts, and they defied what was expected. In the case of Florence, Florence was expected to be a Cat 3, possibly Cat 4 for a while, uh, near its landfall, and it obviously and thankfully weakened significantly before it made landfall. Michael was the opposite, and it strengthened uh, well beyond whatever any computer model uh, had had put out and, and defied uh, intensity forecast that way. So were those events surprising to you or just within you know the expectations that we should all have given the uncertainty intensity f- that we have in intensity forecast uh, as we stand right now in the current state of meteorology? Uh, I certainly was not surprised that the intensity forecast turned out a little differently than uh, what they were exactly communicated to be because we have struggled with intensity forecasting for decades, and it continues to be the number one hurricane forecast improvement need, especially when you talk about rapid intensification near the coastline, as we saw with Michael. Florence was reminiscent of Isabel from 2003 in a number of ways in that the track forecast was, in terms of where the center was expected to cross the coastline, initial landfall, was very accurate. It was a little off in timing, just like it was for Isabel, but we got, we, the weather community, we got the location of landfall down pretty well. And by the way, we we correctly anticipated uh, the, uh, the, the slowdown of the forward speed as it approached the coastline. But the intensity forecast for Florence was too high, just like it was too high for Isabel. It's often difficult to forecast how long a major hurricane is going to hold on to that intensity. 
and and Michael, like you said, was the opposite, and we were always playing catch-up. It kept getting stronger, faster, and we kept talking about, well, it's forecast to be cat one, let's plan for two. Well, now it's forecast to be a three, let's plan for a four. Um, and, and so intensity forecasting continues to be difficult. However, in neither case did it completely hamstring us from preparing properly. And again, the collective us, uh, everybody in harm's way. Because in the case of Florence, uh, we, based on past history with other hurricanes and based on the anticipated slowdown, we had every reason to believe that whether or not it held on to all of its intensity, Florence was going to be horrible because of the anticipated slowdown, but also because major hurricanes, even if they weaken, they tend to grow in size in the process and become larger horizontally. And, you know, any hurricane that has been a major hurricane, if it's going to come ashore, it's probably still going to be awful. Ike did that. Sandy did that. Many other past hurricanes have done that. Uh, so there was no reason for anybody to believe that Florence wasn't going to be bad at the coast and inland, uh, regardless of the intensity forecast. And in the case of Michael, there was enough lead time on the on the hurricane being strong enough to be a major threat in terms of storm surge and wind, that evacuation instructions were communicated far enough in advance. Everybody who could have gotten out had time to get out. And everybody who could have done what you would do in the last few hours or days before landfall had time to do it uh, to protect themselves from all the hazards. So we have a long way to go on intensity forecasting, but I don't think that is the complete solution because even with perfect intensity forecasts, we're still going to have challenges in getting people to do what they need to do to protect themselves from the wind and water. Yeah, I agree with you, Rick. The The forecast was for a Category 3 hurricane at the coast with uh, plenty of time, two days' worth of time, to to uh, prepare as they would have prepared if they knew it were going to be a Category 4. It wouldn't have made any difference. They still would have evacuated if they had really done what needed to be done. Talking about Michael, do you have an opinion on whether it's going to get upgraded to a Category 5 when the analysis is done? And would you uh, describe what the NHC hurricane specialists are doing to make that evaluation? Yeah, so every tropical cyclone, depression, storm, hurricane, major hurricane, every tropical cyclone that uh, the National Hurricane Center handles operationally, they will also have the responsibility to do the post-event analysis and write an official report. And, you know, when I was a hurricane specialist in the Hurricane Center back in the day, I, I did those reports and those post-event analyses. I, I did the one for Katrina and for Rita and, and others. And so what they are going to be doing over the next several weeks and months is uh, going through all available meteorological information and ocean data and, and so forth uh, to construct what is called the best track, the, the meteorological history of the track intensity and size of the tropical cyclone from beginning to end. And that means uh, that what is conveyed in terms of the intensity at various times in its life cycle or its size or its exact track could end up being different in post-event analysis than what was communicated operationally. In the case of Katrina, the landfall operationally was Category 4, and in post-event analysis, based on all available data, the final landfall intensity was Category 3. 
Uh, and in, in that post-event analysis, you, you also document uh, the damage. You document the casualties and other uh, societal impacts, and you document the forecast accuracy. So it's very comprehensive. So with regards to the question of whether or not Michael could have been Category 5 at landfall, certainly that's possible because consider that the landfall intensity conveyed operationally was 155 miles an hour, the highest end Category 4 intensity that the Hurricane Center can convey operationally. Is it possible that based on uh, analysis of all of the data afterward that they determined that the intensity landfall was five miles an hour stronger? That's certainly possible. It, it, it's, you, you are much better positioned to determine the intensity at any point in time of a, of a cyclone's life cycle after the event than you are in real time because your real-time decisions are always one-sided. You only know the, the information up to that time. When you put everything into context, including what happened after the fact, uh, data-wise, then you, know, you can make that determination. I, I, don't, I don't know, uh, and I have not looked at the data closely enough myself to, to know whether or not data exists or uh, an analysis uh, conclusion could be reasonably supported that it was Category 5 at landfall, but you're know, only talking a few miles an hour. It's certainly possible. One thing I will... Uh, say, though, is, you know, I, I went down to Mexico Beach uh, last week and, and looked at the damage and talked to some people uh, that went through it and so forth, and then I was asked afterward, well, do you see anything here that leads you to conclude it was Category 5 instead of Category 4? My answer was no. And there's nothing I'm going to be able to see in the damage that's going to help me determine the difference between 155 and 160 miles an hour. No way. But there might be data an analysis of the data, especially from the Hurricane Hunter aircraft, that could lead them to make a higher or lower intensity at landfall conclusion after the fact. Speaking of the damage, there's been a lot of talk about building code and how it changes just in the panhandle, not you know, let alone the state, but you go from the west panhandle to the eastern panhandle, and they have different uh, building code requirements. So, uh, why on earth is that? There is there any reason why a hurricane would be weaker in the eastern or western panhandle than the eastern panhandle? No, there's no meteorological reason why you can't have uh, the worst of hurricanes, the strongest of hurricanes, hit where Michael did. I mean, we've we've known for decades and decades uh, that area, along with other areas that haven't been hit directly by a major hurricane in a long time, how vulnerable they are. Uh, and, and you did see some people who chose to build for the big one ahead of time, knowing the vulnerability. Building codes are a very local uh, thing. They are, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, set uh, broadly. Uh, some cases they are, you know, set at the state level, but largely they're very local um, in terms of. Uh, what the legal minimum requirement is set to be in terms of what the enforcement is. Uh, and so that is something that uh, you know, organizations like FLASH, Federal Alliance for Safe Homes, I am sure are going to be spending a lot of time uh, talking about giving visibility to and helping people better understand what their building code is, and what they need to do to exceed that code. Because, again, if you just build to your local building code, you're, all you're doing is meeting the minimum legal requirement. You're not necessarily building strong enough 
for what you want the outcome to be. Uh, so I think giving more visibility to that issue will hopefully lead to stronger building codes against wind and water, uh, more consistent building codes, and ultimately more consumer knowledge of what their building code is, because I think people have this false sense of security that their home is stronger than it really is. Yeah, I think here in Florida there's going to be a, a concerted effort to re-examine the, uh, the politics and the process behind the statewide building code and how those choices got made and will be made in the future. And uh, hopefully that they won't forget about Michael and, and forget about what happened there and keep that at the front of their mind when they're making the future yeah, decisions. And, and Brian, I, yeah, and, and one thing that I would strongly uh, advocate for being part of all of that is there are a number of different professions in this country that touch the consumer directly when they are deciding how strong to build their home, what home to build, what home to buy or to rent, that there's not consistency in terms of their knowledge and what they're saying to the consumer. Not every real estate agent, not every insurance agent, not every builder, not every elected official knows what a building code is, knows what is really required to make the home strong, and is not communicating in every case information to the consumer that is accurate. And so education to the consumers, that's a big part of it. What elected officials decide to do in adopting and enforcing building codes is critical. But all of these professionals, all of these different industries that are directly involved in the building and the insuring and the buying and selling of properties, need to be well-educated and on board with this as well so everybody hears the right information and do not get misled into a false sense of security about how strong their home really is or isn't. Rick, in South Florida here, as you know, having lived here for some time, you, you can't own a home without having some understanding of building codes just because when you get go to buy insurance, you find out that if you have an inspector come out and tell you that your house is up to code, you get a big break on your insurance. And so through the uh, post-Andrew years, as that system has matured here, I think there is a general understanding here in, in the southeastern part of the state, at least, that having a strong building code is good both in terms of defense from a storm and saving you money. And I think that's a good model, uh, at least p a partial model, for uh, the rest of Florida and the rest of the hurricane zone. Yeah, and another thing that Miami-Dade County has done a very good job of, and, and it's one of the reasons why they were you know, this year designated a hurricane-strong community by Flash, uh, Federal Line for State Homes, and that is uh, that they have done more to create the result of a, a much greater percentage than you would see statewide in Florida, and certainly greater percentage than what you see nationwide, of people that have flood insurance. And that's an important piece of all of this, too, because different professionals that I've talked to in my home buying and selling processes, especially when I'm on the buying part of the equation and deciding where I live and what insurance I need, not everybody uh, hears that they need flood insurance when they really, really do. And uh, that, in addition to building codes, uh, those two issues are front and center in what we do differently to build better and more properly insure ourselves uh, from future disasters. Yeah, I just think if everybody had flood insurance that really needed it, 
what a difference it would be in terms of the level of pain after an event. And uh, no doubt the difference in, in what it would cost to buy flood insurance because uh, the fact yeah, is... It, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah, it's still amazing to me that that less than 20% of, of people in this country have flood insurance. And in some states, it's in the single digits. And when you compare what the typical out-of-pocket expenses to fix your home from flood insurance that can be the tens of thousands or a hundred grand or more uh, while flood insurance for most people costs in the hundreds per year uh, I, I just uh, really hope that in this country we can change that and get everybody properly insured for flood because after Florence after Mexico Beach and the storm surge disaster a lot of people will not be insured and the government's not going to completely bail you out uh, you need to be insured for flood, and uh, so many people aren't, sadly. Yeah, it's a, it's a cultural thing we need to change. Rick, uh, I need to let you go, but uh, I always like to ask, and I know the answer in your case, but share your story. Uh, what was the weather event that got you into meteorology and especially hurricanes? Hurricane David, 1979. Uh, growing up in southern Florida, uh, I won't tell you exactly how old I was, but I was. I, I thought you were going to say Alicia. Okay, it's a new <laughs> well, story. David, David was, yeah, David was seventy nine, right. and that that was before I went through Alicia in eighty three, right, in Texas. Right. So I, I suppose David, uh, I got bit by the hurricane bug in David, and then it gobbled me up in Alicia in eighty three. You know, I uh, was going through the preparations for David in South Florida. And watching the Hurricane Center director at the time, Neil Frank, brief on it, and uh, I remember how afraid I was, and I remember how much I wanted to be able to do something more about it than I thought we were. Uh, so many unknowns. Uh, I told my parents, "Man, I, I think I want his job someday." I think because I wanted to be able to kind of the equivalent of someone who wants to be able to fix their own car. You know, I, I've got this hurricane problem. I want I want to get involved in doing something about it, so I want to be the hurricane center director someday. Uh, and uh, that's really what I thought at the time. And then when I went through Alicia in 83 in Houston, uh, that was a, a more direct hit for where I lived, and it was one of the scariest nights of my life. Um, and so as a child, that's how I uh, became interested in and afraid of hurricanes to the extent that I wanted to do it for a living and and help all of us be safer from them, and there's still so much work to do. Yeah, there is. All right, Dr. Rick Nav at the Weather Channel. Uh, you'll see uh, Rick on the Weather Underground show and, of course, throughout the programming when there's any kind of a hurricane threat. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. Hey, thanks, guys, so much for having me on. All right, take care. Take care. So, yeah, Rick has uh, seen it all. Rick has been uh, part of it, seen every part of the problem. Um and, you know, now from a communication standpoint you know, at the Weather Channel, he works really hard on, on being sure that the message is put out there. But it is a really difficult uh, issue. I, I think, and I go around saying, that the science of hurricanes has improved so dramatically just in my time uh, doing it. You know, we have just such a much better understanding of what's happening now. But the ability to communicate has actually deteriorated when a hurricane is threatening because now the messages are so fragmented where when I did Hurricane Andrew 26 years ago, uh, you know, there were 
handful of TV stations, and that's where you got the message, or a few radio stations. That's where you got the message. You basically got the same official message on all of them, and there was no such thing as a short version of the message. The only messages you got were the full explanation. You know, there was no way to pick up your phone and glance at it, mm -hmm. right? And, uh, and that's made a lot of difference. So how do we catch up? How do we how do we improve this? Well, I uh, you know, I don't think there's any way to do it without really establishing who the official voices are going to be. The National Hurricane Center is not a strong official voice. They're an authority in terms of they issue the advisories. Everybody knows their information, but they they haven't uh, they don't have a mechanism to really be a strong official voice to people tune in to see these people they know and trust at the National Hurricane Center like it used to be. Uh, uh, Rick referred to Dr. Neil Frank, who was really the first one uh, because he came along as television modernized enough to have remotes and things like that. Before uh, Neil Frank in Miami was... was uh, um, uh, Done. Uh, what's his name? Anyway, he he was the guy. He was everybody knew him because his name was in the paper. It's like going all the way back to 1926. Everybody knew Richard Gray because his name was in the paper. Mm. Uh, and and so you knew him that way, and you knew him from being on TV a bit. But it wasn't until Neil Frank came along that he really became a voice of the National Hurricane Center. And when, when Rick was there, and, and Ken Graham does a lot of things on Facebook, but the thing is, all that that Ken, that Ken does now, the current director of the Hurricane Center and, and the other specialists that, that do, is that, that what all of us do is diluted by the fact that you have your phone and your Facebook and your Twitter and your multiple channels and... and you know, you, you do things in a much more fragmented way now. So even though uh, Ken has made a really big effort throughout his career to communicate, it's just harder now than, than, uh, than it's harder to find him. It's harder to make, make any voice dominate. Yeah. What, what are you looking at? Gordon Dunn. Gordon, Gordon Dunn. Dunn. And, you know, Thank you. with that, too, it, I think it becomes – We've talked about this before, where the initial, uh, maybe when the, it's first brewing, the the hurricane that's threatening where you live is first brewing. You pay a lot of attention at first, and then after that, it'd be easy to just get get the highlight, and you're not listening to the details anymore. So that first impression is going to be a lasting one, and then from there, after that, you're going to look at a graphic and you're going to do interpretation on your own. And yeah, and the and the changes in the forecast and all can be critical, yeah. can really be major. I, what you what you're talking about is the phenomena of people getting this impression and then sticking with it and either moving on because it did not seem like a threat or acting like it's the continuing extreme threat and not backing off as the situation changes because they're scared. So uh, this, is, this is indeed a complex problem, but the, the, at the root of it, I think, is there is no place that everybody goes. You know, everybody knows when I get up in the morning, I got to check with so-and-so in so-and-so place on so-and-so channel or website or whatever it is that, that uh, has the dominates, uh, rises above the noise dramatically. 
Now, um, it, it's a tough problem. It's mm. just, uh, you know, it's because we have so much noise in the, in the communication system now. So anyway, that's going to be something that we'll um, continue to work on. And as Rick mentioned, uh, he was fundamental in getting the storm surge messaging process changed and started. And Jamie Rome, who works on that at the National Hurricane Center and runs that unit there, will be here on the podcast next week. Hey, I do have a question for you. Okay. Uh, on insurance, we talked yeah. we talked about that. Flood insurance is different from storm surge insurance, correct? No. Um, it's all the same? All the same. I thought right. that it would be, oh, a hurricane caused this or a hurricane didn't cause this damage. Those were two different kinds of insurance. That's, it's not the case. that's wind insurance. Yeah, if if the National Hurricane Center declares it, uh, it's where it's a named storm, that it depends on the part of the country. It's a little bit different in different parts. But generally... Storms that are caused by hurricanes, uh, your insurance has a different deductible, and it's kind of a different kind of insurance than if you just had a really bad th afternoon thunderstorm mm -hmm. that was really severe, right? you know, cause a problem. That would be different. Flood insurance is federally subsidized, almost all of it, federally subsidized. Now, you can buy some rich people buy rich people flood insurance <laughs> from Lloyd's of London or something, but but in the United States— Flood insurance is a federal program, which has limits on how much you can insure through the federal government. And there's a whole fight about uh, whether the flood insurance should be based on the absolute risk. Uh, so flood insurance rates, if you live right on the water, have gone up dramatically. But that, that has to do with water damage from flooding, no matter what the, where the flooding comes from. So if we had a Hurricane Harvey situation here, People that have flood insurance to defend against storm surge would use that same flood insurance to defend against the freshwater flood. Okay, so if just clarify this question for me then. If you have a house where the roof gets opened up by a hurricane from the wind and then it rains and you get water damage, but you don't have flood insurance, are you going to be okay? Yeah, I think so. I, th I think that then, uh, but this is a good question for your insurance agent. I ask right. a similar question in a in uh, reference to a condominium. I said, suppose you, because, you know, if you're on the 10 or 15th or 20th floor, flood insurance is not your issue for your unit, right? Right. Now, your building may need flood insurance, but that's a separate thing. But you have your own unit insurance, okay? And let's say you have shutters on the, the windows or impact glass on your windows. And, I mean, your unit is buttoned up and hurricanes can come and go and nothing's going to happen in your unit. But the unit upstairs is not. They don't have shutters and whatnot. And the question is, suppose their unit gets blown out, the water all comes in, and it comes down and does damage in your unit. Uh, I've gotten all kinds of conflicting mm, stories about nightmare. that. I mean, because it, it may turn into a legal issue of you end up suing somebody that lives above you for negligence or something, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but that's a complicated uh, question and a good question for your insurance agent. This podcast, sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe, uh, rain or shine, wind big, visit miccosukee.com. Check out everything they're doing here in South Florida and discover the winner in you. So let's just talk for, for just a moment about Hurricane Wilma, which 13 years ago today, as we're recording it, so it was August 24th, 2005 that Wilma came across South Florida and that was the end of uh, this incredible two months that included Katrina 
and Rita and Wilma, which were spaced about a month apart. It was, it was bang, bang, bang. And I, I worked uh, 53 of 55 days straight, averaging 12 hours a day mm. <laughs> through that Monster. through that period because there were other storms too. I mean, those were the ones that we remember, but there, and this all started, by the way, in June. <laughs> and it overshadows 2004, which was a crazy busy year. <laughs> which was year. a crazy busy year, yeah. So anyway, uh, that was uh, 13 years ago today. And Wilma was one of these uh, ultra fast developing Caribbean storms. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. Right no, now, Michael. thankfully, in the case of uh, Wilma, this all happened down in the Caribbean over the water, right? But it was it was ultra intense. So, so just to get the dates right, it officially became a hurricane on Tuesday, October eighteenth. At that time, by the way, the cone was aimed at South Florida, so we were paying ultra attention to this. And then it exploded, and the very next day, it was 185-mile-an-hour Cat 5 with a two-mile-wide eye. It's a tiny, (laughs) tiny eye. The tiniest eye that uh, anybody's ever seen Uh, because they don't necessarily keep all the eye records, and we don't know about eyes before there were really aircraft in there measuring them accurately, Mm -hmm. which until GPS was a very difficult thing to do. So we don't really have a good history of eye size, but nobody uh, at the Hurricane Center at the time in 2005 uh, ever thought about an eye of that size, especially in a hurricane that was as big as Wilma. Well, it went through these really complicated eye wall replacement cycles where it had two extra eye walls uh, at some point and ended up with this giant eye wall, this giant center, and that was the storm that came over South Florida. So it hit the Everglades coast as a, a Category 3, and then it came over the metropolitan area as officially a Category 2. But uh, before it got here, uh, it, the it winds blew in Key West a bit, and then everybody thought, okay, Wilma's, we, we survived Wilma, but then the water came on the backside. Big diameter storms produce huge storm surge. So if you think about this big rotating storm, over the Everglades, where's the northern push of water? Mm. Pushing it, right? Yeah. Pushing it right at the Keys and right into Florida Bay. So the middle and lower Keys, including Key West, got severely full. The water just kept coming. Just kept coming up, coming up, coming up, coming up, because the back end of one was like a big scoop, a lesson for big, big storms. Then over the metropolitan area, it, it was a Category 1 in Dade, much of Broward, a Category 1, maybe some isolated Category 2, a little more Category 2 in Palm Beach County, where the center went through Palm Beach County. But from the eye wall went from Miami-Dade, from uh, downtown Miami, north all the way through Palm Beach County. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <Yeah>. Monster. <laughs> so it was all a front-end storm. It was all about the front-end eye wall. It blew like a banshee. And uh, people thought it was a lot worse wind than it was because after the storm, Brickell Avenue was like all these high-rise buildings missing their glass. And the streets were filled with with glass because there was a little uh, decorative failure on uh, one building down downwind that ended up at about the 20th floor making a debris stream 
that blew across all these high-rise buildings and knocked out windows. That just about shot to, missiles all over. All over the place, yeah. So anyway, you know, in the end, MIA recorded sustained winds of 67 miles an hour, a strong tropical storm with gusts of 92. Uh, so the lesson, uh, the lesson for Wilma, and there were many lessons from Wilma, but one of them is that it doesn't take a uh, category three something. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we literally in Miami, we did not even have official hurricane force winds wow. sustained. So anyway, it ended up being twenty-one billion dollar storm in Southeast Florida, the fourth most expensive hurricane in the history of hurricanes at that time. Wow. Now um, we keep uh, racking them up. It caused an update to the building code, which uh, talks about debris now flying around at, at a higher elevation. So modern buildings are indeed uh, stronger. So uh, that's our podcast for this week. Now we'll be back for one more podcast this hurricane season. As I said, Jamie Rome from the Storm Surge Unit at the National Hurricane Center will be with us talking about storm surge, which will be fascinating after Hurricane Michael, one more reminder that the podcast is sponsored by your neighbors at the Miccosukee Tribe. Rain or shine, win big. Visit Miccosukee.com and discover the winner in you. For Luke Doris, I'm Brian Norcross at the WPLG Local 10 Podcast Studio in Miami. Have a good week, and we'll talk to you one more time in hurricane season 2018 next week.